Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Howdy everybody, CJ here, your Gorilla Skuller Warrior and Renaissance Man in this ever-darkening age in which we find ourselves. Yes, I still live. This episode is going out approximately two months since the last DHP episode I put out. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the longest I have gone since launching the Dangerous History podcast in the summer of 2014 between releasing episodes. Now, you may have noticed I've made appearances on a few other shows in that time over the last couple months, including another appearance on Tom Woods. And I've been, you know, a couple times a month submitting short segments to Jack Spierko to be included on the Survival Podcast Expert Council episodes, because, of course, I am now a member of the TSP Expert Council. But it's been a while since I've put out a DHP episode, and there's a reason for that. It's been an extremely stressful, busy, rough last couple of months for me. The good news is I feel like I'm coming out the far side of a lot of it. The other good news is I'm still on the wagon, and I'm a little bit past seven months sober, so despite the stresses, and so forth of the last couple of months, I've managed to stay away from the booze, which, honestly, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised with myself that I've resisted the temptation, despite how rough the last couple of months have been for me. But some of this I've talked about publicly, some of this I've talked about with supporting listeners who are part of the live stream and book club tiers, so they hear from me more regularly and have video conversations with me. And by the way, if you become a supporter of this show on Patreon or Subscribestar at 50 bucks a month or more, you get access to all sorts of perks and bonuses and benefits, including being part of the DHP book club discussions every month. And the next one we're doing, by the way, in I haven't scheduled it, I had to bump it because I've been busy lately, but the next one we're going to be discussing in probably another one to two weeks is going to be the excellent coming-of-age horror novel, Summer of Night, by Dan Simmons. So, if you'd like to get in on that and other book club discussions, please consider signing up to support my work at either Patreon or Subscribestar. Links, as always, in the show notes. 
But yeah, it's been a rough couple of months for me, really rough and really busy and really stressful. And uh, just a few of the things going on, and you know, this is all I'm going to talk about publicly for now, but my mental health and my marriage got extremely stressed in August, a combination of my continuing struggles with depression and the financial stresses that my family is in right now, really kind of put my marriage on the rocks for much of August. And on top of that, something I'll be discussing in this episode quite a bit, my last surviving grandparent and favorite grandparent, my paternal grandfather, also passed away at the age of 94 in August of this year. Now, my marriage is in a better place overall, just in terms of my relationship with my wife. At this point, I would say we're no longer on the rocks, but we have other issues that we're dealing with. And part of the reason, too, why you haven't heard from me a regular DHP episode in a couple of months is that I've had to take on a lot of non-DHP work just to try and make ends meet and keep my family's financial head above water, including as I'll mention in this episode I'm going to share with you, doing some part-time work for my dad, which pays pretty well, but requires some long drives. And then I've had to take on some additional work as well in the last few weeks that I'm not going to talk about publicly right now, but basically I'm working a full-time job and then some aside from continuing to try and chip away at the DHP when I can. So my apologies for the lack of new DHP episodes but I've been in a desperate struggle to save my marriage and to, you know, keep my family from becoming homeless. So I hope you understand. I've been working on DHP stuff when I've been able to here and there, going back to my kind of old school guerrilla scholar warrior roots of doing little things when I can. But anyway, this episode that I'm going to be sharing with you was actually recorded slightly over a month ago. And because I've been so ridiculously busy and also stressed with all kinds of things, it took me this long to kind of, you know, edit it, clean it up a little bit, throw on an intro and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But here it is now, and I hope you enjoy it. And then I'll just mention, um, I'm not out of the woods yet as far as things go. My mental health is doing better. And thanks to all the extra work I've been doing, I'm hoping that my financial health will be a little bit better in the near future as I start to get paid for more of that stuff. And by the way, side note, apologies if you've emailed me or social media messaged me or Patreon messaged me or anything in the last few months. I've been, you know, very sporadic and behind on keeping up with any of that stuff. So please don't take it personally if you sent me a message and haven't heard back from me. And that includes, um, there have been a few people I've seen in my inbox that have sent messages asking about hiring me for freelance work, and I just simply have been so busy and inundated with other obligations that I haven't been able to respond to those, much less, you know, take on any of the work that the people are offering me. But uh, if any of you who did that are listening, I appreciate you, and had things not gone so crazy for me the past couple of months, I probably would have already gotten back to you and taken you up on your offers of work. But as things have been, I've just been unable to because of other things I have already taken on previously, other obligations. But just so you know uh, what's going on with me now, unfortunately, as I started to fix other, you know, things going wrong in my life, just in the past few weeks, my wife's health has taken a significant turn in the negative. 
And so she's been really not feeling well and not doing well. And honestly, we're even concerned about how much longer she'll be able to continue to do the job that she currently holds, which is then adding back, even though I've been working to try and fix this problem, it's been adding back to the financial stresses because if she's unable to continue doing the job that she's been doing for the last bunch of years, that would be a massive financial stress to my family in light of where we're at right now. So anyway, been very busy, been very stressed. But fingers crossed, as I settle into my new jobs that I'm doing a little bit more, even though I'll continue to be very busy with those, fingers crossed that I'll be able to start to devote more time back to the DHP. But anyway, enough updates here. I'm going to turn it over to myself from a little over a month ago, doing a DHP Heroes Spotlight on my late grandfather, Bill Kilmer. Howdy, everybody. This is CJ, and welcome to a special edition of the Dangerous History Podcast, a special DHP Heroes spotlight on a good man rather than a great man. I mean, he was a great man in the most generous, idealistic sense of the word great man. But he was not a great man in the sense that this is often used, that term where it's applied to blood-soaked politicians and generals and things. So in case you can't tell by the sound of the audio, I am in the silver bullet. I'm doing a bit of a long drive today, and this is because I've been having to do multiple kind of part-time side work freelance things lately for financial reasons to help make ends meet as best I can. And one of them is I'm doing some work for my father and it involves some long drives. So you are joining me in the silver bullet that knock on wood is still going at nine years old and a hundred and almost 167,000 miles as I look at the odometer right now. My 2014 silver Hyundai Accent hatchback that I purchased brand new just a couple of months after I started the Dangerous History Podcast. May have only been even one month after I officially, you know, published my first episode. I forget. So she's a bit tired cosmetically. She's seen better days. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I had to drop quite a bit of money to basically get the entire air conditioner redone. Thankfully, my father was able to help me out a little bit with that, so I was not forced to throw all that on credit card, which I would have been if not for his assistance. Because times have been tough for me, as I'm sure they have been and probably still are for many of you listening. In many cases, through no fault of our own, own, at least, you know, a lot of it. Like, we didn't make 
inflation go nuts. So I've been having a particularly rough time on many levels over the past, I don't know, three weeks or a month or so. Um, as of this recording, things are on the uptick. Things are improving on multiple fronts. And, um, you know, everything's still not great, but at least it's moving incrementally in the right direction. But anyway, another thing that happened during this clusterfuck period of kind of the first, I don't know, half or two-thirds or so of the month of August was that I lost my last living grandparent. And um, I'll say this publicly now that all of my biological grandparents are gone. He was also my favorite grandparent. And that is my paternal grandfather, William E. Kilmer, known as Bill to his friends and acquaintances, as Dad or Pop to his kids, and as Pop or Poppy to his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And for at least the last week or two, I've been thinking about doing this, about doing a DHP Heroes special on my paternal grandfather. Because while he wasn't perfect, and of course nobody ever is, he was one of the best men that I've ever known, you know, closely. And he's an example and inspiration, I think, of what a good man can and should be. And honestly, as I've been struggling to claw my way out of some very dark depression in the last month or so. One of the things I've been trying to do, I've been, I've been doing many things to try and treat this and, you know, have made some progress. But one of the things I've been trying to do is sort of cognitive behavioral therapy approaches to trying to reprogram the thought patterns and brain loops of my mind away from depressive loops. And if you've never suffered from like real, oops, had to pause there for a moment, take a phone call. But anyway, I'm pretty sure I didn't lose my train of thought too badly, which just shows you the progress I'm making recovering from alcoholism and depression that I'm starting to actually have a bit more of an attention span and a functioning memory again. But anyway, um, one of the things that I'm trying to do as I'm trying to come out of depression is to consciously retrain my mind's thought patterns to avoid the habit that you get into when you're in, you know, real clinical depression of just everything, your brain takes it in the worst possible way and puts you into these dark, pessimistic and um, self-denigrating loops. So anyway, one of the things I've been, I've been trying to consciously do, just as an example of trying to reprogram my thought loops is my instinct when my last surviving grandparent, who also, like I said, was my favorite grandparent, died, my instinct was to just get more depressed about that and to see it as, oh, this is just another horrible thing piling on on top of all my other problems and stresses, my depression, my financial struggles, my marital issues, the AC on my car breaking when it's 100 degrees outside every day all these other things, and here's just one more disaster. I just am cursed. The universe hates me. 
whatever. And so I instead, and I think I did this pretty successfully, tried to focus on all the positives, some of which I'll get to a little bit later. And then also, when I look at the example of my grandfather, Poppy, and what a good and great man he was in so many ways and so many admirable qualities, as far as I can tell, it seems like he just did not have any significant proclivity toward depression. As far as I know, he never got seriously depressed in his life. Now, he got down about, you know, when a bad thing would happen to him or whatever, but I never saw, and even in hindsight with, you know, the greater insights and expertise I've gained on depression and recognizing it and trying to deal with it, I don't think I ever saw any evidence that he was ever anything close to clinically depressed. And he always seemed to take just about everything in stride and always kept, you know, an upbeat kind of demeanor, even in the face of adversity. And so when I look to him as sort of an inspiration and example of how to be a good man, my depression, you know, computer virus in my mind, its instinct would be to just turn it into kicking myself. Like, why can't I be as resilient against depression as he was. Also, I never saw any evidence that he was at all prone to addiction. He was a very much a moderate drinker, but I don't think he got drunk very often and generally seemed to be pretty good at, you know, having a glass or two of wine and calling it a night or having a beer or two and calling it a night. And it was relatively rare that I ever saw him have more than one or two uh, drinks, and often he would have only one. And so I've been resisting the urge to kick myself by comparison with him and instead say, look, he was wired differently. He had a different combination of nature and nurture than me that made him prone, or I should say made him not prone as I am, to depression and addiction. And there's there's no morality to it in the sense that, you know, it was just luck in both cases of circumstances. Good luck in his case on these issues, bad luck in my case on these issues. But, you know, as Clint Eastwood said in Unforgiven, deserves got nothing to do with it. Now, it's not my fault that I ended up with the right combination of nature and nurture to make me an addict and to make me very prone to severe depression, it's not my fault. But that doesn't mean it's not my responsibility. And so I've been consciously trying to, every time I feel my brain trying to go into negative loops and say, you know, look at your grandfather, what a great guy he was, and, you know, his example, um, my depression loop, you know, demon in my mind wants to use that to kick myself further and say, you're, you're such a, a defective loser compared to somebody like him. You know, why couldn't you have been as resilient and upbeat as he always was? And instead to say, it is what it is. You, through circumstance and luck, ended up with your brain being smacked in those directions of addiction and depression. However, you can still admire this good man and 
even though, you know, you have different, I'm sure he had his own struggles of various kinds to deal with because everybody does just in different ways. Um, and that you have different struggles than he does. So don't beat yourself up over just the luck of the draw of how those things go. And you can still admire him, look up to his example and try to strive to live up to it as best you can in your own way, giving your own, you know, different psychology and, you know, different combination of nature and nurture that got you there. So anyway, I put together a few basic little notes and timeline um, from his obituary that I'm going to use as an outline, and then I'm going to riff a little bit here and there on like some of my own thoughts and memories and things of his life. So here it is, DHP Heroes, Bill Poppy Kilmer. So my poppy was born on May 11th, 1929 in Fairview, New Jersey, which is in northern New Jersey in, I forget the name of the county, but it's a county that's right on the border of the state line of New York. And he grew up, I believe, primarily or entirely actually in western New Jersey, right next to the Pennsylvania border. And I only went up to visit where my grandparents, he and his wife, who I'll mention a bit later, um, I only went up there to visit some of the, you know, distant relatives. I mean, some of them weren't so distant, but like my great grandmother who was still alive at the time, Poppy's father, or I'm sorry, Poppy's mother, um, and also her twin sister who was my great aunt and, um, some other, you know, cousins and uncles and things. And there were relatives on both sides of the New Jersey, Pennsylvania border there. So that's, Kind of where, as far as I know, he did all or most of his growing up. And in fairly small town, sort of an environment. Now, obviously, being born in 1929, that is the year of the stock market crash and what's generally seen as the official beginning of the Great Depression. From what I can tell, socioeconomically, they were something like middle to lower middle class. By the standards of back then, I don't think they were impoverished, but they certainly were not wealthy or affluent. And so I'm sure he grew up um, having to work very hard from a young age. You know, I've heard a few stories here and there that, you know, he started working at quite a young age. And not only did he develop a heck of a work ethic for, you know, like working jobs, but he also developed a lot of skill at just general handy sorts of things. Like he just sort of grew up, I guess, learning from the older men around him, things like carpentry and basic construction and how to fix all kinds of things and whatever, which was far more common amongst middle and working class American men of his generation than it is and has been amongst subsequent generations. So since he was born in 1929, he is officially considered to be at 
the very beginning of the so-called silent generation, which is the generation in between the GI or World War II generation on the one hand and the baby boomers on the other hand. They're the in-between generation there. But since he's at the very, like, just first few years of the, G- of the uh, excuse me, silent generation, he's one of those cuspers that you can sort of see has some of the stereotypical characteristics we associate with the generation right before him as well. He's sort of on that, that borderline between the GI generation and the silent generation. And so sort of like how I, being born in 1981, depending on exactly where you draw the line, I'm either at the very tail end of Gen X or the very beginning of the millennial generation. And I definitely feel like I have personality characteristics of both combined. I've always felt like, in terms of my own personality and psychology, I lean more toward Gen X for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I definitely am not as solidly Gen X as somebody who was born in, say, like, 1970 or 1975 or something. By contrast, our current illustrious commander-in-chief... Joe Biden is also technically considered part of the silent generation, being born in 1943, and the baby boomers are usually considered to be starting in, in either 45 or 46, but again, he's like, you know, kind of right on the border, and it always seemed to me that Joe Biden, in terms of his personality and psychology, is way more of a stereotypical boomer than he is, and in particular the worst aspects of the boomers, I should say, than he is um, a silent generation guy. And by the way, my grandfather absolutely despised Joe Biden until his dying day. Politically, he was, in most ways, my grandfather, a very right-wing guy. So as you might expect, he didn't have a a lot of love for any Democratic president of his lifetime. But I think it's possible that... I never asked him this question directly, but if I had to bet money, I would say that he probably hated Joe Biden more than he hated any other president of his long life. But anyway, I once, without even thinking about my grandfather specifically, I once just sort of sat down and did a thought experiment of if you had to pick the best time to be born in modern America, you know, sort of like 20th century onward America. When would be the best time to, you know, nothing is a guarantee of of success in life, and people born during wonderful times for the country as a whole can still, you know, have terrible lives, um, either through just bad luck or through bad choices or through, you know, a number of different things. Even during boom times, there are people who go broke and bankrupt and, you know, whatever, either through no fault of their own or through fault of their own. But, you know, if you wanted to have the best odds of having the most opportunities for a good, solid life, as long as you were smart and willing to work hard, what would be the best year or couple of years? And basically, I, without even thinking about the year that my grandfather was born... I came to the conclusion that late 1920s would be the best if you could pick. 
somewhere around 1928, 1929, maybe 1927 too. And my reasoning was as follows. If you were born in the late 20s, you'd be a kid during the Depression. Which, you know, would mean not having a luxurious childhood in most cases, unless you were lucky enough to be born like to the Rockefeller family or something like that. But when you're a kid, you don't necessarily know. As, as long as you have, you know, a roof over your head and, and food and basic needs met, as long as you're just, you know, not impoverished enough that you're literally hungry and, you know, going without shelter or whatever, you don't really know when you're a kid, especially if you're mostly around other people who are roughly at the same um, socioeconomic level as you. You don't really know if you're poor and you don't feel the stresses and things the way your parents might during the same, you know, time and circumstances. And so you would have gotten through the depression when you were still a child and an adolescent before you had the responsibilities and stresses of, you know, trying to find a career and potentially trying to raise a family and all that. So the depression, again, assuming your basic needs were met, the depression would not have stressed you the way it would have stressed someone, say, in their 20s, 30s, or 40s. And if you were born in the late 1920s, you would have been just a little bit too young to go off and fight in World War II. So you would have had, you know, zero chance of getting killed or horribly maimed or severely traumatized by World War II, as so many people who went off to fight in World War II did. You know, they the U.S. death rate in World War II was, in proportion to its population, I think the lowest of any of the major participants in the war. And I think by a pretty good margin. I want to say, it's been a while since I looked at the statistics, I want to say that the Americans killed in World War II... I think we're maybe like 400,000, which is a lot, but it was the biggest war in human history. And the United States, even back then, was a fairly big country in population. And so, you know, comparing it to the death rates of most of the other major participants in the war, especially when you factor in population, it's really the U.S. simply did not suffer that bad. Nonetheless, you know, uh, if you go off to fight in World War II, obviously you have much better odds of getting killed in it than if you don't. And, um, you know, for every one person who was killed in World War II, there were many more who were physically and or psychologically severely damaged. You know, guys who lost limbs and things, guys who came back with, like, super bad untreated PTSD, like, for example, my grandfather on my mother's side. So if you're born in the late 20s, you, by luck of your age, when World War II was happening, you were just a little bit too young for it. However, if you were born in the late 20s, you know, very first few years of the silent generation, you would have been probably too old, unless you were like a career uh, military guy, you would have probably been too old to fight in Korea which my grandfather was. He did serve in the military for three years, and I'll get to that in a moment, but he was in the military for three years right in between World War II and Korea. And 
you know, left the military with an honorable discharge, I believe, the year before the Korean War started. So, again, you would have avoided all the dangers of being killed, maimed, psychologically wrecked by fighting in that one. And if you were born in the late 20s, you would have been coming into your adulthood, you know, like into your 20s in age, right as the United States was entering the closest thing it's had to a golden age, at least in the last 130, 140 years or so. You know, the years from roughly 1946 to, say, 1962 were in many ways some of the best years to be an American, especially if you were, you know, at least solid, lower-middle working class or better. And yeah, there's always exceptions and so forth, but I mean, those years from the late 40s to the early 60s, for the most part, the economy was good. There were some recessions during that time, but none of them were horribly severe. And for many of those years, the economy was booming in some ways like it never has before or since. Those were the the years when you had the most odds and opportunity of, even with no college degree or anything like that, getting a solid middle-class life on one income. You know, a guy with a high school diploma or whatever going to work doing what we would think of as like a blue-collar job could often support on one income because taxes and inflation had not yet, you know, started damaging breadwinner income so much at that point, could, with a little bit of intelligence and hard work, have a very solid middle-class life. You know, afford a good middle-class house in the suburbs, one, maybe even two decent cars, enable your wife to be a full-time, you know, mother and homemaker, or maybe only work part-time to supplement a little bit and give her something to do if she wanted to. And, you know, to be able to, to raise your kids in, in security, maybe not rich, but solidly economically secure. And um, in many cases, if you started working those sorts of jobs during that post-war golden age, you also would have been able to retire at a relatively young age because pensions were still, you know, very solid and generous back then. And Social Security was still somewhat significant relative to the cost of living and in proportion to how much you had, you know, been taxed to pay into it during your career and whatever. And so a lot of people uh, that were born in the late 20s ended up being able to retire at what today we would consider very young, you know, early 60s often or even late 50s if, you know, they had a decent job and worked hard and were smart with their money. And very often, people with even what we would consider kind of like lower middle class jobs today, very often back then, they could afford to, you know, take some nice vacations over the course of their life and all these sorts of things. So anyway, for those and a variety of other reasons, I once sat down and, and kind of calculated just as a thought experiment that at least as of right now, maybe we have golden times ahead, but I'm a little bit skeptical about that, uh... And, and even if we do, I don't think they're going to be real soon. And I think there's a good chance things will get worse in the short term before they get better. But to be born, say, from b between 1927 and 1929, probably the best odds you could give yourself, again, assuming a little bit of good luck and 
you know, basic things like having a good work ethic, being reasonably intelligent, and being reasonably, you know, competent with your money, of giving yourself a solid middle-class life. And yeah, there are exceptions, you know, people still lived in poverty. Some people still lived in poverty during that time period, uh, despite being born at that time. Obviously, you know, this was a time period where, um, much more so than today, there were, like, real significant uh, hurdles for black people and also, you know, some other non-white ethnicities in many parts of the country. But just, you know, in general, that's a, a good time to be born, late 1920s even though you would have been born right into the beginning of the Great Depression, essentially. But it would have been over by the time you were looking to really kind of start your career. So anyway, my grandfather was basically in his early to mid-teens when World War II was happening. And as a small-town, patriotic, middle-class American... And by, by the way, he and his... Uh, wife, my late grandmother, they were both from New Jersey, but they were not at all anything like any sort of, you know, Jersey Shore stereotypes that you might have when you hear about somebody from New Jersey. These were German-descended New Jerseyans whose families mostly went back in that area uh, quite a long time. And like I said, you know, kind of had family on both sides of the border of western New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. So, like, these are not, you know, Italian Jersey Shore stereotype people or anything like that. In fact, my grandfather had pretty much no discernible New Jersey accent, like what you would think of as a New Jersey accent. My grandmother had a little bit, and it would occasionally come out a little bit more if she was, like, you know, excited about something or whatever and, you know, um, getting uh, either in a good way or a bad way kind of agitated. Um, but... My grandfather had little to no New Jersey accent that I could detect and actually had a little bit of a Southern accent at times, probably because he lived the vast majority of his life either in Florida or in North Carolina. So anyway, when World War II was going on and my grandfather was like in his mid-teens, you know, in high school, as a good patriotic guy of the time period, all he wanted to do was to be in, you know, contribute, to go fight in the war. And um, for whatever reason, he, he got really into the idea of flying airplanes from an early age. And so he wanted to be a pilot, a military pilot, and help win the war. And um, I'm pretty sure I can remember him saying that, you know, like most people, he wanted to be a fighter pilot, because that's always the kind of, you know, coolest, sexiest job you can have as a military pilot. And that's, you know, what everybody who joins the Air Force wants to be, if they're being honest, or just about everybody. And it's anybody who goes into the Navy with the intent of going into naval aviation, that's probably what 99.9% .9 of them are thinking too. You know, nobody signs up to the Air Force or to the Navy with the intent of going into aviation because they're like, oh, I want to be, you know, a mechanic or I want to be the dude that is like the, um, you know, the air traffic controller for the Air Force base or the uh, aircraft carrier, or I want to be the guy that flies the refueling planes, or I want to be the guy that flies the cargo planes or something like that. Like, no, everybody pretty much, I think, wants to be a fighter pilot, like even before Top Gun and movies like that, but, you know, more so since. And so that's what he wanted to do, but he was too young to get in while the war was still going. The war uh, had the bad taste to end 
in the summer of 1945 when he was still 16. However, not long after his 17th birthday in 1946, he enlisted in what was then still at the time known as the Army Air Corps. And he actually left high school technically before completing like his last few classes that he needed to officially get his high school diploma. So, like, I guess technically you could call him a high school dropout. So he went into the Air Corps in 1946, of course, um, as an enlisted man. And, of course, as so many people who do join up to become fighter pilots, he was given a different job. And he ended up being trained as a mechanic. And he worked on, you know, military aircraft engines and became, over the course of three years, in the Air Corps, and then after 1947, while he was still in it, is when it officially was transformed into the Air Force, um, as part of the National Security Act of 1947, which I covered um, a few years ago in a podcast episode. It's possibly the most, the single most important piece of legislation in setting up the post-World War II, Cold War, American... Uh, garrison slash national security state of phase three of the American empire. So this is the same act that also did things like setting up the national security council in the executive branch. And it also created the CIA and created the defense department to now include all branches of the military under one umbrella department And another thing that the National Security Act of 1947 did was to take what had been up till then the Army Air Corps, which was, you know, kind of a semi-independent but still technically uh, part of the Army overall thing and make it its own completely independent branch of the military now known as the United States Air Force. So he actually was in when that happened. And he told me a few stories about just sort of what it was like to sort of be kind of a grunt airman you know, an enlisted guy, and to kind of, you know, I, f- I forget exactly uh, what he, they had like a little ceremony or whatever where they officially uh, rebranded and, you know, I guess got new insignias and patches and things on their uniforms, I guess. So he went into the Army Air Corps and came out of the United States Air Force. He got an honorable discharge in 1949, I believe, after three years of service, and he had risen to the rank of sergeant. And he had been courting the woman who would become my paternal grandmother, Teresa, maiden name Sharnagal, whom he had known, I forget exactly when they met, but they, you know, knew each other growing up in western New Jersey. And at one point, I believe, while he was still in the military, he had actually gotten some leave, but he had been posted out to, I think, California or someplace way out. Uh, on the west coast of the United States. Of course, my grandmother at the time, not yet married to him, still living in small town New Jersey. And he had gotten a little bit of leave. And he actually, he had a motorcycle at the time. And I think he rode it. Maybe he wasn't all the way out on the west coast. Maybe I'm mixing it up with another story of the two of them going across the country on a motorcycle um, a little bit later. But you know, he, he rode his motorcycle, if not all the way across the country, like most of the way across the country, just to go visit with her for a few days or whatever. So, you know, evidence of he was falling in love and, uh, you know, what a kind of a cool guy he was that 
there he was, like 19 or 20 years old, and rides a motorcycle across the country just to go, you know, visit his uh, girlfriend. I don't, I don't know if they were fiance, fiancés yet at that point. Got out of the military, and in 1951, he married Teresa Sharnagel, making her Teresa Kilmer. Uh, she generally went by Terry. And to me, she was always Granny. That's what I always called her. I always called these two grandparents, I always called Granny and Poppy. And I will say, Poppy was my favorite grandparent. She was my second favorite out of my, you know, biological grandparents. I have some other, um, you know, step-grandparents and things that I was close to because both of my parents divorced and remarried and also my mother's parents divorced and remarried. And in, in particular, I had a lot of um, affection for and a close relationship with my stepfather's mother, who died uh, around 20 years ago, also lived to be in her 90s like my grandfather did. Um, I was very close to her, but in terms of my actual biological grand- grandparents, Poppy, the focus of this episode, he, he was my favorite, and uh, Granny was my second favorite, for sure. And, you know, part of why he was my favorite is that, you know, he was a man, and so as a guy, boy, and then a young man growing up, uh, much as I loved Granny... Poppy always kind of resonated with me more, for lack of a better term. But they were both wonderful grandparents. And um, unfortunately, she got ill and, you know, had, had a lot of pain and things in the last few years of her life. And also got depressed during that period, you know, because of how poorly she felt physically. But for most of her life, she was a very energetic, positive, upbeat enthusiastic woman um, who was most of the time just just quite a joy to be around. And so they married in 1951, and then I'm always bad at remembering the years that my parents were born. My father was born, the first of their children, was born um, either later that year or the following year, 1952, I forget which. But um, also in 1951, I think not not long after, might have even been immediately after they got married, I forget the timeline, for a variety of reasons, they decided they didn't want to live in New Jersey anymore, and they moved down to Florida, and that's where my father was born. My father was born in South Florida. And this was the time to move to Florida. You know, late 40s, early 50s, or really the entire 50s into the early 60s, this was the heyday of the kind of initial post-World War II sunbelt boom, where thanks to a variety of factors coming together, like lots of new employment in various fields, as well as improved uh, transportation, especially interstate, the interstate highway system starting to be built in the 1950s, contributed, it didn't, didn't start it, but it contributed. And then also things like um, air conditioning becoming affordable to even middle-class people starting in the early 1950s, and a number of other factors that you got a boom in population in places like Florida, Texas, Southern California, Arizona, and to a lesser extent, some other places along the southern rim of the United States, like New Mexico, Georgia, and a few other places. And the three places that boomed the biggest 
during this sunbelt boom of post-World War II America were Florida, Texas, and California, especially Southern California. And so this is the period when Florida went from, pretty quickly went from being, I think, still the least densely populated state in the eastern United States to being one of the most populous states in the country. And, you know, on its journey to, I think it was just within the last decade or so that Florida overtook New York State to become the third most populous state in America after only California and Texas as number one and number two, respectively. So it was a great time to be moving to a place like Florida. And part of why they moved to Florida was for job opportunities. It's amazing. I've heard both Granny and Poppy tell the story in a few different ways. It's, It's amazing that, you know, they moved down to Florida when he was, you know, 22, I guess. And she was, I forget if she was two or three years younger than him. Um, she, she was a few years younger than him. So I think she was only in her late teens. And, you know, they didn't have hardly anything in the way of money or whatever. He had just gotten out of the military. And they moved down to Florida on, like, a rumor. You know, it's amazing in these days, well before the Internet and well before you know, a whole lot of ability to like research the the job market and housing options and whatever in a place before relocating to it. They moved down to Florida, basically on a rumor. My grandfather had heard from somebody that there were job opportunities in uh, either being, I think, either working at a like a plant that made parts for airplanes or maybe as a mechanic in some capacity for airplanes in Plant City, Florida, which if you know your Florida geography, Plant City is actually um, on the Gulf Coast of Florida or near the Gulf Coast of Florida, you know, kind of over towards Tampa. And so, like, they came down, you know, with all their possessions and whatever little cruddy car they had at the time. And when they got there, it turned out that the rumors weren't true or the jobs had already been filled or whatever, and there wasn't anything there um, for my grandfather to get in terms of jobs. And so instead of, you know, going back to New Jersey to, you know, retreat to where the rest of their family still was and everything like that, instead uh, they, I guess, heard another rumor or whatever that, oh, you know, down in the Miami area in southeast Florida, there's actually a lot of jobs for people with skills in aircraft mechanic type stuff. And so that's where they went. And that's where my, my father was born and then his two younger sisters, my aunts in, you know, the Dade County, Miami area. And he got a job as a mechanic on airline aircraft, which, you know, at the time still propeller aircraft. And it just so happened that the place that he applied for a job down there, they wanted him to work on the engines of planes that, I I forget the, you know, models and everything, but it was to work on the engines of a model of airline plane, and it just so happened that the engine was basically the same engine as was used in some bomber aircraft that my grandfather had been an absolute expert on in the military. You know, that he could probably, like, take apart and rebuild and fix anything wrong with them blindfolded. 
And so it's just, you know, absolutely perfect luck as far as that goes. And technically, they wanted you to have a high school diploma for the job. But whoever was hiring, unlike in modern academia, had some ability to waive official certification and whatever. And so basically, the guy who was doing the hiring asked him some questions to see if he really knew how to, you know, do everything on these engines. And, you know, my grandfather passed with flying colors. He knew everything there was to know about this engine. And so they had some sort of arrangement where he was able to get hired with no high school diploma because he had already, he could demonstrate that he knew everything there was to know to work on this particular engine. And um, they just arranged for him to uh, take whatever couple of courses he needed as night classes and get basically a GED while he you know started working for them. And that's what he did. And so he did a great job and excelled as an aircraft mechanic. And within just a few years, he became a flight engineer, which is a guy who flies in the airplane, you know, in the airliner when it goes on its trips, and is basically the third ranking officer on the aircraft after the pilot and then the co-pilot. The flight engineer is you know, the third guy on the totem pole, and he's in charge of making sure everything is working properly and troubleshooting and whatever as they're going. And, you know, he's also the guy who the buck stops with him as far as, like, doing all of the final checks and everything before they actually set off. You know, making sure everything is how it's supposed to be and there's, you know, no maintenance issues and everything's correct so that the plane can fly safely. And that was his career for, um, I believe, 34 years. He was an airline flight engineer. And he worked uh, for a long time for National Airlines. That was the initial company that he did this for. And then eventually he worked for Pan Am Airlines. And I think it was some sort of a deal where like National went under, but then Pan Am bought them or something like that. I, I forget the exact details. But, you know, it was a good-paying job, and, and he was able to ultimately, through hard work and being smart with his money and all these sorts of things, he was able to basically make himself solidly upper-middle class. A guy who technically was a high school dropout and who finished it up with a GED shortly after getting out of the military. And by the way, if you spoke to Poppy, as I always called him, you would never suspect that this man, you know, had zero college credentials to his name and got a GED after military service because he was very well spoken. He was very intelligent and he was very well read and he was a very um, curious guy. I guess, you know, I, I don't share his resilience against things like depression and addiction, but I do think I share his overall intelligence and also his curiosity, his desire to intrinsically want to learn about things and read about things and, you know, curiosity about things. So he's a wonderful example I could point to of many that I've known over the course of my life of people who, you might say they're uneducated, but you're actually wrong. They're not heavily schooled, but they're actually quite educated. And 
you know, they're a combination of autodidact and then sort of practical education of being out in the world and doing things and learning skills and whatever. But also, you know, reading a lot and acquiring knowledge that way too. Now, even though he was eventually able to make a very good living for himself, and I I believe by the time he retired, I, I believe, if I remember right, he was the senior most flight engineer in Pan Am. He actually had the opportunity late in his career to go on the path to become a pilot. But by that point, he sort of would have had to be like kind of demoted because he would have gone from being one of their top flight engineers to being, you know, a low guy on the totem pole as far as being a pilot. And, um, you know, he would have possibly even taken a pay cut, although I'm not sure about that. But he, he would have, by that point in his career, he was like being the flight engineer on the prestigious flights. He was the guy who was the flight engineer on like, you know, 747 flights to Tokyo and back or to Berlin and back and whatever. And if he would have become a pilot, switched over to that at that point in his career, you know, he would have started off flying the puddle jumper routes between like North Dakota and uh, Fairbanks, Alaska or something, you know. And so he just decided, even though by that point in his career, he had um, become a private pilot, he had pursued that and gotten his private pilot's license. And for a while in the 70s, he even owned a small, you know, private propeller aircraft, a Piper uh, PA-12. Owned that for a number of years and flew it around a bit in the 1970s. But he ultimately decided to stay with flight engineer because, you know, rather be the top flight engineer than be, you know, near the bottom of the the pilot pool. And he did have some hard times, despite, you know, having a good-paying job during a lot of years when the American economy overall was quite healthy. And a lot of it had to do with airline strikes, you know. he's He was part of a union for that. I believe it was compulsory. He, like I said, was always a, a right-wing guy, and so generally was not a huge fan of unions in most instances. You know, he wasn't 100% against them. I, I think he had a view. I think I remember hearing him say something along the lines of, look... You know, at, at a certain point in American history, especially for certain types of jobs, unions did some good for the working men. This was his view that, you know, there was a need at certain times in certain jobs for unions to make sure that the working man wasn't getting fucked over too badly. He wouldn't have used that language, but, you know, that's my take. But that in general, he was fairly skeptical about unions as most you know, right-wing people tend to be in most cases. But nonetheless, he was part of a union for that. And, um, you know, there were multiple times over the course of his career when the airline union went on strike, and then he'd have to just, like, suddenly his pay was gone. And, you know, I know multiple times over the course of his career, I think his savings got basically wiped out because of that, and there were multiple times where, you know, he would have to do, if the strike went on a long time, he would have to do other random jobs and things to make ends meet. He drove a dump truck, I know, um, at one point, and other miscellaneous things, um, including a few entrepreneur things, which didn't always pan out, but very resilient and a hell of a work ethic. And so, you know, seems to have always taken it in stride and just kept doing what he needed to do to take care of his family. And, you know, made smart investments and eventually was able to do pretty well for himself. 
I'm going to pause here uh, because I'm getting to where I have to get out and do some work. And so um, I'll get back to you uh, in a few hours after I wrap up and I'm heading back for home. Alrighty, well, thanks to the magic of audio editing, you were seamlessly transported within mere seconds to the future. Yes, what for me is several hours after I stopped speaking to you in the first half of this episode was to you just a couple seconds. Wow. We live in the future. So anyway, I think where I left off talking about my grandfather, I think I was talking about his career and how well he ended up doing for himself despite his humble origins and shortage of formal degrees and schooling. And also how well he did for himself, despite the fact that multiple times during his career, he was basically kind of temporarily laid off by airline strikes. But I also wanted to mention a little bit more about his skills as a guy who could pretty much build or fix just about anything. You know, not just plane engines, but like he could do carpentry uh, very well. He could do, you know, most other like construction type skills, at least competently, if not at a master level. And yeah, he knew how to work on and fix and maintain airplane engines and things like that. But he also could do just about anything on a car. And for much of his life, he did most or all of his vehicle maintenance and repairs himself. And, you know, only stopped doing that later in life, A, because he was eventually prosperous enough that as thrifty of a guy as he was, he eventually got to a point where he decided, eh, you know what, since I can now at this point and I'm getting kind of old, I'm just going to pay my, I'm just going to pay somebody else to do these things, even though in, in most cases I probably still could do them myself. And then also, uh, towards the, I don't know, last few decades of his life, it got tougher for him to work on and fix and tell other people to fix. Like if I or my dad called him for advice about a vehicle repair or something, it got tougher for him, at least with certain things, simply because in the last however many decades, more and more aspects of vehicles became computerized and required specialized skills and tools that he didn't have, and, you know, he would often, as as gearheads from the mid-20th century, or who started being gearheads in the mid-20th century will often do, he would talk about the good old days when, like, there were no computers in cars, and, yeah, you know, there were, there were cons to that, too, but it did mean that if you were broke and had a little bit of know-how or had access to somebody else who, you know, could help you with that, you could fix damn near anything, and then, you know, once more aspects of a vehicle's systems got computerized, it got tougher to where there were just certain things you couldn't uh, fix as a shade tree mechanic, you know, that you couldn't MacGyver your way out of. And I've always been in awe and very respectful and also on a level very jealous of people like him who just seem to know how to fix or build damn near anything. And I've got, you know, other relatives and, and friends and people I've known and whatever that are like this, too. And I'm not completely useless. I know how to do, you know, some basic vehicle repairs and maintenance stuff myself. And, 
you know, I'm not completely useless with a set of tools if you need me to cut some stuff and nail some shit together or whatever. I, I can do basic things. But I'm not to the level he was at or the level, you know, some of my other friends and family members are at where it seems like they have this almost magical ability, even if it's fixing or building something that they've never dealt with before, but because they're just so skilled at related things and just because they have, you know, well over the 10,000 hours of experience or whatever, they can often very quickly and very skillfully figure out how to build or fix something that they've never actually, you know, dealt with before. And so it's incredible to me when I hear about how much he did in terms of the various homes um, that they lived in, where he would not just fix things and maintain things, um, you know, some of which I could do, but some of which I couldn't. But also, you know, he could like build additions onto a house, even though in theory he didn't have formal construction credentials. I mean, he had experience of various types, much of it as a very young man of doing certain things. I'm sure that's when he started learning how to do carpentry and stuff like that. But he could have very easily, I think, made a good career for himself in some sort of construction-related field. And in, I think it was the mid-1970s, after living in a series of, you know, progressively a little bit bigger and nicer homes over the course of his career. And by the way, when he first moved to South Florida and started working for uh, the airlines in the Miami area, the first place that he lived in with my uh, grandmother, you know, as a pregnant, like, 18-year-old or 19-year-old or something, and then um, shortly thereafter, also with my father as an infant, they lived in Hialeah, which, you know, back then I guess there still were gringos uh, in Hialeah, at least some, not so much today, but um, they, they lived in a home, quote-unquote, that was a converted chicken coop with nothing resembling air conditioning. So, you know, even though by his latter part of his life, he was pretty affluent, he certainly earned it. And he certainly, you know, knew what it was like to not have money and to live in physically not the nicest uh, circumstances. But anyway, in, I believe it was the 70s, he bought some land. I don't know if it was technically in Homestead or the Redlands. I've heard it kind of referred to as both. But in a rural area, kind of south of the city of Miami. It's, a lot of it's still fairly rural today, but back then, much more so even. And built himself a nice house there. You know, not a mansion, but I, I don't remember how many bedrooms and bathrooms. A decent-sized house. And he and my dad, who by that point, you know, was into his career in construction, he and my dad did the bulk of the work themselves. And they brought in, you know, hired some help for a few things, hired a few specialists for some of the more specialized tasks. I'm pretty sure, you know, they had an actual electrician come in to do that stuff, things like that. But the bulk of the work he did himself, you know, along with my dad chipping in too. And he did this when he was 
not much older than I am right now, I think, like mid-40s. And things like that and other instances of things that he accomplished that either I accomplished at a much later age or I never accomplished, they really blow me away. I think about, you know, I'm about to turn 42. Do I think that even if someone gave me the piece of land, I forget how many acres they had down there in the Homestead Redlands area. I want to say it was like four or five acres, decent sized piece of land, but not like a big ranch or anything. Even if someone gifted me the land and gave me enough money to buy all of the materials that I would need, I'm not building a house primarily myself. I'm not building my house primarily by myself with, you know, one other person uh, who knows what they're doing to help me. Like, that's just not, that's, that's never going to happen. I don't have anywhere near the know-how to even consider doing something like that. But I think it shows you how previous generations often matured and grew up faster in a lot of good ways. Like, more recent generations have grown up and matured faster in some bad ways. Like, for example, you know, I would say, and I'm no Puritan and I'm no advocate of, like, state censorship or whatever, but I don't think it's good for the psychology of a young person to be exposed to too much about sexuality too early. And certainly our generations, the last several generations, I think you could make a strong case they've grown up too fast on average in some of those things. And, you know, which wouldn't have been the case with my grandparents' generation. But they grew up and matured faster in other ways, like, for example, starting their their real careers, not just their, you know, jobs they had as youngsters to make some money, but their actual careers earlier than people start their careers today, usually because they went to little or no college. They often started paying on an actual home that they owned younger than people today, significantly younger, I would, I would wager. They often married and started having children younger. And so they kind of became adults in the ways that actually help you to build a better life for yourself earlier than subsequent generations. So anyway, I was born in 1981, and at that point, Poppy was 52, much younger than most people's grandfathers are when they are born. And it's because of this, and because he lived such a long life, that I was lucky enough to have my grandfather in my life for almost 42 years. Basically, if he had hung on another five weeks, I would have turned 42 with him still around. And he was pretty darn healthy. And so, and and again, my grandmother was several years younger than him. So my paternal grandparents were perhaps the youngest grandparents of anybody else that I knew, like any of my friends growing up or anything like that. I would say that the majority of my friends... Their grandparents were all at least in their 60s when they were born. And so as a result, by the time they were in high school, their grandparents, if they were even still alive, were, you know, at least in in their mid to late 70s, if not already in their 80s. Meanwhile, my grandfather turned 70 when I was getting ready to graduate high school. 
I guess it would have been shortly before my senior year of high school, now that I do the math in my head. That's when he turned 70. And he was a very healthy, active 70. And so for my childhood years and my teen years, I had a pretty healthy and active set of grandparents. And as a result, they were still physically able to do a lot of things with me. They were physically able to take me hiking in the mountains of North Carolina and things like this that most people's grandparents simply can't do when their grandchildren are adolescents and then even teenagers. And looking back now, I realize how lucky I was that they were young enough and healthy enough that I was able to have that quality time with them when they were still active and, you know, relatively young. So anyway, he retired from the airlines in 1988 after, I believe, 34 years as a flight engineer. So that would have been when he was 59. And again, he was a healthy 59 and an active 59. He did have some back issues. I know that at least part of why he retired was that. And also, he had done well enough in terms of saving and investment and uh, whatever pension he ended up getting that, you know, it was financially feasible to do so. So I was only like, you know, depending on what month it was that he officially retired, I was only like seven or eight years old when he retired. And not long after he retired, I don't remember if it was the same year or maybe the next year, they sold their home on the fairly big piece of land in South Florida and, you know, I'm sure made some amount of profit on it. And then they moved up to the mountains of North Carolina, to Brevard, North Carolina, which at that time was a much smaller town than it is today, if, you've, if you go there today. A significant amount of the homes and stores and everything there um, was not there when they moved there. Some of it was starting to come in by the time they left. Although the cute little downtown of Brevard actually isn't too much different than it than I remember it being when I was a kid, you know, going to visit them in the 1990s. Some of the stores and restaurants are, you know, different ones than they were back then, although some of them are the same, which is always kind of nice. Granny and Poppy lived in really just outside Brevard, North Carolina, in a really neat house, by the way, that was up on a little mountain. And they lived there for, I would say, approximately a decade I think they basically lived there for, you know, most, if not all, of the 1990s. I think they, they, they moved back to Florida, but not to South Florida. They moved back to Florida, but settled in Mount Dora in Central Florida, because by that point, they no longer wanted anything to do with South Florida. It had gotten so overpopulated and congested and built up and overdeveloped that they, they, you couldn't have paid them to live in South Florida again, which honestly is how I've felt ever since I left South Florida in 2000. And that area around Mount Dora, Eustis, Tavares, um, even that is much more built up now than it was, you know, when they moved down there 20, 25 years ago, whenever it was. And they moved into a fairly big, nice house on Lake Dora, one of the big, huge lakes there. Um, really neat house with a boathouse out back and they eventually got a pontoon boat that they would, you know, take themselves and relatives if, you know, we were over visiting or whatever, take us out, tool around the lake, sunset, you know, nice stuff like that. They uh, had a, a wave runner for a while. I remember 
writing it sometimes when I visited them. But anyway, that, that's where they ended up after North Carolina. But, uh, but I do just want to mention, in the decade, roughly, that they lived in North Carolina, which my grandmother, to, for the rest of her life, she said those were her favorite years of their life. During that time, I visited them frequently, sometimes, you know, going up there with other members of my family and my parents, whatever, but multiple times going up there by myself, at least a couple of times, I, as say, maybe like a 12, 13 year old kid, maybe even a bit younger than that too, um, got on planes and, you know, flew by myself. I felt like a big kid, you know, flew by myself from my home in South Florida to go stay with them for like a week or two, often in the summer, although we also went to visit a few times in the winter to experience a little bit of snow and things like that, which, you know, if you're growing up in South Florida, that's a pretty awesome deal to see even a little bit of snow. And I loved going to stay with them in North Carolina. I always loved it. They always brought me cool places. You know, they take me different, uh, hiking different places, tubing on the rivers. They take me fishing, catch little trout and things. They take me to various scenic places. And again, to a young guy growing up in super hot, super flat, super crowded South Florida, the mountains of Western North Carolina were just an absolute paradise. And I'm sure that is why to this day, I just, I love mountains. And it's a shame that I'm still trapped in hot, flat, crowded Florida because uh, the heat drives me crazy. I mean, there's things I like about Florida, don't get me wrong, but... The summer heat does get old, especially with the summer humidity that just makes it a thousand times worse. And even though I live in a little bit less crowded area now than where I grew up, still, overall, the state is too crowded for my preferences. And there's no there's no mountains at all. There's like a few places with some small hills, and even that's pretty rare. But man, those visits to stay with my grandparents when they lived in the mountain house in North Carolina... Those were some good times. And believe it or not, uh, my grandmother even went whitewater rafting with me down the Nantahala River at least once, maybe twice. I can't quite recall. I think one of the times one of my aunts might have gone with me instead. But she went with me at least once. I mean, not a whole lot of guys can say, yeah, oh yeah, when I was, you know, 12 or 13 probably, my grandma went whitewater rafting with me. Also, by the way, during the first decade or two after my grandfather retired, they bought an RV and then over the years, you know, had a, at least two or three different RVs, you know, they traded out for a newer one after a while or whatever. And they traveled the country, you know, went up to Alaska, I think multiple times, went to like all the, you know, well-known national parks, many of them multiple times, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Glacier. They never lived full-time RVing, but they traveled extensively. And I traveled with them in the RV a little bit here and there. Never anywhere as far away as, like, Wyoming or something like that, but, you know, regionally in the southeast. And then a few times I would go, like, with my dad and maybe a few other members of the family, and we would meet them somewhere. They'd be somewhere in the RV, and we'd, we'd meet them, you know, fly in. Like, I remember one time we did this uh, to meet them in Wisconsin because... Of course, my grandfather being a former flight mechanic and flight engineer and private pilot, big aviation buff, as you might expect. And my dad, too. My dad also eventually got a private pilot's license and, and that sort of thing. 
never worked professionally in aviation, but, you know, he was always a big aviation buff. And so we met them one time for the giant air show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And they had driven up there in their RV. We flew in, met them, and then, you know, were able to camp with them at the air show in Oshkosh for however many days we were there. So they ended up having a hell of a retirement. And they also traveled the world. Now, they started doing this when my grandfather worked for the airline because, of course, he could get really good discounts on plane tickets. And eventually, when they could afford it, they took advantage of it and they traveled extensively, particularly in Europe. They were both of German ancestry, so, of course, they loved visiting the scenic and historic places in Germany and a lot of other parts of Europe. So they traveled much more extensively than I have and probably than I ever will, unless I get a lot more prosperous soon and um, air travel becomes more available and less of a giant pain in the ass than it currently is. And by the way, my grandmother, I should mention, I don't think after she got married, she ever worked a job. I could be wrong about that. Maybe she had a little part-time thing or whatever at some point. But I think basically, like most women who are middle class or better of her generation, she was primarily a mom and homemaker. Now, she was very active. And so the fact that she had, uh, that she didn't have a conventional job outside the home did not mean that she was just sitting around watching soap operas or whatever. She was very active physically. Her mother was very obese and eventually died of that. And so my grandmother was always very strict on herself with diet and exercise and, you know, maintained a healthy weight. And until the latter years of her life, she walked a ton almost every day, walked miles almost every day. And she also just had a whole bunch of activities that she was in, hobbies and things. She taught herself to play the banjo a bit. Uh, she did clogging, a whole bunch of random things. And she volunteered with various charities, I know, at various points in her life. So she was definitely active, and my grandfather was away a lot because of his job in the airlines, and she was a strong, independent woman, basically. And she started off, I've heard from, you know, my aunts and other people that in the early days of their marriage, she was very, like, shy and timid and just sort of intimidated by the world. But she eventually overcame that and became, you know, I would have never guessed that based on how I always knew her as a very outgoing sort of a woman who was, you know, not at all shy about expressing her opinions or jumping into a conversation. And she also became eventually not at all shy about being active and doing all kinds of things, including outside of the home, while my grandfather was gone, you know, on work for the airlines. So they were wonderful grandparents in just about every way you could imagine. And I have to say, you know, and just be honest, and, and my mom would agree with this, neither of my mom's parents came even close of being as good of grandparents as my dad's parents were to me. And partly it was because they were a bit older. They were more like solidly World War II, you know, GI generation. But also, both of my mom's parents had what I now realize were some pretty serious mental health issues that went, in my grandfather's case, my maternal grandfather's case, untreated for his entire life. And so he had 
multiple serious mental health issues, including some PTSD from World War II that was never diagnosed and treated. And so he was not a particularly good father or grandfather, to put it mildly. And then my mother's mother suffered from serious depression and really got no diagnosis or treatment until near the end of her life, when it flared up pretty badly after her second husband passed away. And my mom's parents actually divorced eventually, and then both remarried. And so in part because of their age and in part because of their mental health issues, they were not particularly good grandparents, and eventually they lived kind of far away. My maternal grandfather lived in Georgia for a while, which, you know, you might say Georgia's right next to Florida, but yeah, remember though, I was living way down in South Florida, first in the Miami area, then the Fort Lauderdale area. So to get from there to like North Central Georgia, which is, I believe, the area he lived in when I was a little kid, is a hell of a slog. And then he eventually moved back to Florida, but he lived several hours away uh, north of me. And we visited him occasionally, but it wasn't super frequent. And my understanding is that it was usually my mom, or maybe always my mom, who kind of pushed for us to go visit him, and that he never really invited us, kind of a thing. And the only reason I liked visiting him as a kid was because he lived in Vero Beach near a really, really nice beach for boogie boarding. And when we went to visit him, that's what I looked forward to. I did not look forward to hanging out in his house and spending time with him. That was usually, like, the price I had to pay for having access to nicer beaches for boogie boarding than I had back home. And then my mother's mom, when she remarried, she moved all the hell the way out to California. So for that reason, we didn't see her very much anyway, and she wasn't particularly fun to be around when we did see her. And I have to say, she remarried to a guy who was a very very good guy and a very nice guy who I did always appreciate, but you know, they lived out in California and I only ever saw them at most, maybe like for a few days at Thanksgiving or something most years. So, you know, even though he was a really good guy, he just wasn't around me that much. My grandfather was really in many ways a Renaissance man, which both my father and myself, I, I would say are in our own, you know, different ways. But in addition to know, to knowing how to, build and fix damn near anything. He dabbled a little bit in home beer making, home brewing, I think in, what was it, the late 70s when that was finally legalized in the United States after having been illegal for a long, long time. Um, he taught himself a lot about investing and be eventually became pretty savvy with that. And he didn't just do carpentry, like building little things for the house and stuff like that, but he would do fairly artistic carpentry. He would build me little wooden toys when I was a little kid, few of which I still have. I still have a toy box that he made for me when I was, I think, a toddler. Like, as far, as, far back as my memory goes, I've always had that toy box, and I still have it today. Today, by the way, um, I store ammunition in it, which is hilarious. So he did some kind of artistic things, often with like woodworking and that sort of stuff. And he also dabbled in multiple musical instruments. 
he never mastered any of them. He never pursued any of them in enough of a focused way to get, you know, really good at it. He could play a bit of guitar, but both my father and myself can play a lot more guitar than he ever could. Towards the end of his life, he got pretty good at playing the ukulele, which he got into in part because as he got older and got more physically infirm, he could no longer play guitar as well as he could. And, you know, the ukulele has softer strings and, you know, closer together frets and that sort of thing. So it it just physically doesn't require quite as much strength and dexterity as a steel string guitar. He also could play a little, little bit of piano, not a lot, but he had an innate sense, particularly of melody. I don't think he was ever a great chord player on any instrument, but he had a pretty good musical ear for melodies and was pretty good at figuring out how to play a lot of melodies on guitar, piano, ukulele, and then the instrument that he probably was the best at at his peak was harmonica. And he had a whole bunch of different harmonicas and different keys, and, you know, before he started to lose his dexterity too much to play, he was a pretty good harmonica player. And one of the items that I got from him when I went over to his funeral... One of the items I got from him was one of his harmonicas. So it's in the key of D, which is a pretty good guitar key. You know, he had a whole little bag of them. I think he had a dozen maybe of, you know, multiple different keys and then also some chromatic ones and whatever. And he was a pretty good harmonica player. And I've only ever dabbled in harmonica just a little bit. You know, I'm not very good at it. But they asked me if I wanted one of his harmonicas. And I said, of course. And, you know, my, my dad and my aunts and everything. And I said, um, I'd like one in a guitar-friendly key. So I said, I-, I want one either in G, C, or D, because those are probably the two, or sorry, the three most common guitar keys. And then maybe right after that would be like E and A. But I would say G, C, and D, especially when you're talking about like country music, rock music, pop music, all those sorts of things. G, C, and D are probably the three most common and popular keys for songs. So anyway, I got the D one. So he's at least in part, part of why I've always been drawn to this sort of renaissance man of dabbling in a bunch of different things and maybe only mastering a few of them, but being, you know, fairly competent in multiple things, fairly knowledgeable in multiple things, and as a result, being able to pick up additional knowledge and skill sets fairly quickly compared to most people if they're like super specialists in one thing, you know, if they're only experts in one or two things and that's it. And then my dad is that way too, in in his own ways. Like I said before, my grandfather was definitely a right-wing guy. As far as I know, he was a registered Republican his entire adult life. He told me a story about how, I guess it was when he first moved to Florida and he was getting a driver's license and whatever, they also registered him to vote and they asked him what party. And I think at that point in his life, he hadn't been particularly political minded, politically minded. And this was, you know, I think 1952 or thereabouts, maybe 51. And he told me that basically his train of thought at that moment was, well... 
I like Ike. I think General Eisenhower is a good guy. And, you know, I don't recall if it was when Ike was already running for president or not, or if he was just, you know, a guy whose name was floating around as a possibility. But, you know, as a military veteran who served in the late 40s, Eisenhower would have been a leader that somebody like my grandfather would have just very much respected and thought the world of, even though in many ways, I think my grandfather would have probably been more of a Taft Republican if you would quiz, you know, 22 year old him on the actual issues. And he was definitely throughout his life, more of an anti-establishment conservative Republican. You know, he liked Reagan a lot as far as I could tell. But he also was a big Goldwater supporter back in 1964, and in the last years of his life, he was a big fan of Trump. So, you know, he was about as red-pilled as a right-winger who was born in 1929 was likely to ever be. I mean, he never went full Rothbardian anarcho-libertarian or anything, but far as I know, not many people of that generation other than Rothbard himself and a handful of other people who were his you know, buddies and compatriots at that time. Um, not very many other people of that generation ever went that radical. But he definitely was an anti-establishment conservative with at least some libertarian leanings. Although, you know, again, as a guy from 19, born in 1929, with a bit more social conservative leanings on some issues. A man of his time, as we all are to some extent. All right, so sorry, I might have lost my train of thought there. I had to stop at a gas station, get some fuel, empty my bladder, and also I had to change the batteries of my portable digital recorder. It was about to die on me. And um, unfortunately, it looks like the exit that I pulled off on is ridiculously busy. Port Orange, a little bit south of Daytona. And man, you know, sometimes you pull off... You pull off just to, like, get some gas and take a whiz real quick, and there's so much goddamn traffic that it takes you forever just to, like, figure out your way back on the damn interstate. So, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. So, anyway, might be a little bit of discontinuity with, with the last segment, but uh, I'll do my best. So, anyway, I never saw my grandfather what I would call clinically depressed. But I did see him bummed out about a couple of things, at least, towards the latter years of his life. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I remember where I left off last time. Um, they had moved from their nice big lake house to a smaller house in a elderly people community. Still in Mount Dora, but, you know, no longer in the pretty area on a lake and whatever. Um, and that that's where they were when my grandmother passed away in 2017. And then my grandfather lived there independently for a while, eventually did have to hire whatever they call it, people to come in and like help him take care of things just because since he couldn't walk, he needed help physically with various things. And then last several months of his life, he lived with my aunt and uncle who had moved up to that area from South Florida a while back just because he, he could no longer, you know, safely live by himself just because he had lost so much of his physical capacities. So... One thing I know that bummed him out was when he started to lose his hand strength and dexterity enough that he could no longer even play ukulele or eventually even harmonica. And I know that it had always been part of his life playing music, and especially in his latter years, you know, 
when he couldn't walk anymore. And then after my grandfa- grandmother died, you know, when he's by himself, I know that was just, it was something he did, you know, for fun and release and to keep his mind sharp and whatever. And uh, I know it bummed him out when he just could no longer play any musical instrument anymore. And then the other thing that I know bummed him out in the last few years of his life was the just insane, ridiculous shit show that this country has been, especially the last, say, three years. You just imagine to somebody who's, you know, what I would consider among the best of people born in the late 1920s, like the best of what that little micro generation of people, the very end of the GIA generation, the very beginning of the silent generation, a guy who in many ways embodied a lot of the best attributes and virtues of that generation. What he thought watching the shit show, the clown circus of the last three years. And I know I I heard my dad and my aunts and uncles kind of saying, not really jokingly, that maybe he finally, you know, clocked out when he did a few weeks ago because he just didn't want to see where the hell this country was going to go. Because he, he was a very patriotic guy in, you know, the best kind of Norman Rockwell, Smallville, Clark Kent kind of way, Captain America kind of thing, like really did believe in the best of what America is supposed to be about. And really did want it to be a city on a hill and that kind of thing. And so he was very disturbed about the insanity of particularly the last few years. But anyway, about three weeks ago, um, he had been in the hospital not too long before for some things. And then, you know, seemed to be getting better, came home for, for a week or something. And you know, was still kind of struggling with some things health-wise or whatever, but seemed to be doing all right. And he had already bounced back from, like, multiple, you know, health scares over the last several years. And it was one of those things, you know, when I was talking with my dad about it, we kind of said, you know, he's 94. (laughs) He's been through a lot. He might not have much time left. This might be, you know, the last last, uh, bit for him. On the other hand, though... He's bounced back so many times from so many other things that if anybody's just going to, you know, magically stick around for a while longer, it'd probably be him. You know, he was a tough guy. But he, just over three weeks ago from this recording, uh, in the afternoon, he kind of said something like, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling that great. I'm a little tired. I think I'm going to take a nap. And he did. And he just never woke up. And so, think about the life that he lived. He was born when Herbert Hoover was president. And he died when Joe Biden was president. Think of all the things he saw between 1929 and 2023. He lived to be 94. And his mind remained pretty sharp until the end. And, you know, he was physically pretty good for quite a while until he eventually declined there. He lived and his wife lived through to their 65th, a little bit beyond their 65th wedding anniversary. He got to watch his children all grow up into kind of early elderhood years. 
He got to meet all of his great-grandchildren. By the way, they're all daughters. He had no great-grandsons. Myself, my sister, uh, and my stepbrother on my dad's side, all of us only cranked out daughters for whatever reason. But he got to meet all of his great-grandchildren, and he got to actually know them like as they grew up beyond just being infants. He got to see his great-grandchildren, uh, the majority of them, grow into their teenage years. I, I think my sister still has uh, her youngest, I think is not quite a teenager yet. But anyway, how many people get to do that? How many people get to live to be 94, have a great life, have a long, healthy retirement, travel the country in an RV, travel much of the world, and this from a guy born into humble circumstances in a small town in New Jersey who never went to college a day in his life, who got a GED after serving in the military, basically, but who was smart and who worked hard. And you can imagine how to somebody like that, this country was a city on a hill. And it bothered him to see, you know, what I would call the imperial decline of recent years. And at this point, there's almost nobody left from his generation. And I went to his funeral, and he died when, as I think I said before, I was dealing with a whole bunch of different personal and family crises and stresses, and my depression was, you know, even though I was approaching six months sober, my depression had flared back up to really bad, and I was struggling. And he died. And even though initially I kind of instinctively felt like, oh, shit, another... Another horrible thing happening to me. The universe is getting, you know, all the usual depression mind loops. But I was before long able to take a step back and look at it mostly through a positive lens and say, look, he lived a hell of a life that we should all be so lucky to live. Anything resembling that, you know, to be married to the same woman for 65 years, to have in many ways lived the American dream, to have watched your grandchildren grow all the way into the early stages of middle age to have known your great-grandchildren and watched them grow up into adolescence and then to have finally gone out peacefully in your sleep not long after having celebrated your 94th birthday. That's about as good of a life story at the end of your life, as anyone could wish for. You know, we should all be so lucky. And I'm not even saying it was all luck. I know a lot of it was that he worked really hard, was a really good guy, and, you know, was smart. And he was a really good guy. One of the best men I ever knew. He was that honest, upright, decent, hardworking, middle-class American who were the reason this country had, for a little while, something resembling a golden age. It was them, more so than the politicians, that gave America that brief period where it seemed like the marketing was more true than not. I don't think anybody who really knew him had anything bad to say about him. He was always more than willing to help anybody that he could. You know, especially friends and family. He helped me multiple times in a bunch of ways. I know he helped my dad in countless ways. I'm sure he's helped my aunts in countless ways. And he would even help strangers if he could. You know, I know that 
when he was younger and, you know, more physically fit and active, like if he saw a family with a broke down car on the side of the road, he was the kind of guy who would stop and help them. And decent odds he could fix their car at least well enough that they could then, you know, limp over to a, a mechanic shop or whatever and give them a ride if he couldn't fix it. And when I went to his funeral, you know, everybody was sad, of course, but it was about as positive of, of a funeral as I've ever been to or could have imagined going to. And so in many ways, I know this might sound wrong on the surface of it, but if you've been listening to this whole thing, I think you'll understand what I mean. In many ways, I feel like for me at least, it was kind of lucky that he died when he did, simply because I actually drew a lot of positivity from his funeral, from going to it, from talking and reconnecting with family members there, many of whom I don't visit and talk to as often as I should. But, you know, family members that I, I get along with well and that sort of thing. And it happened at a time when I was really starting to really push myself to reprogram my psychology as much as I can to make it more positive. And so I was really able to mostly look at the positive. And instead of saying, you know, my favorite grandparent is gone and now all my grandparents are dead, I looked at it as I had my favorite grandparent the longest out of any of them. And how many people have their grandfather around until he dies at 94 and you yourself are almost ready to turn 42? And all the great times I had with him and with my grandmother as well and all the things I learned from him and all the benefits I had from having him in my life. And, you know, I had a little bit of the feeling that everybody has when a loved one dies of, you know, oh, I wish I had visited a little bit more often the last few years and things like that. You know, I had a little bit of that, but it wasn't too bad because he and I would text off and on. And eventually it got to where because of his dexterity issues, he couldn't text back very much, but I knew he still got him. And so I'd occasionally just randomly text him to, you know, if I had done something cool that day, I'd, I'd text him. You know, if I took my kids to the beach and we had a good time, I'd send him a picture or two of us, you know, and say, oh, we had a great time. Hope you're doing well, you know. And, you know, I know he appreciated that. And one of the things that made it, you know, not so bad for me, any feelings of regret that I didn't spend more time with him or whatever, I did sort of have, I didn't know it at the time, but now I kind of see it as that. I did sort of have a goodbye conversation with him. Just about, I don't know, a month or two before he died, he called me on the phone. And he hadn't called very often in a while. And he called me on the phone. Just far as I, far as I knew, out of the blue, you know? And we talked for a long time. Might have been the longest phone conversation I ever had with him. And it was a really good conversation. And of course, I had no idea in a month or two, I forget exactly when the phone call happened, I had no idea that within a month or two, he'd be gone. But it was a really good conversation. So much so that, you know, I told my wife about it afterward. I was like, hey, Poppy just, uh, a little while ago, he called me and we talked a long time and it was a really good conversation. So because he did that, I don't really have those strong feelings of, oh, I didn't get to say goodbye or, you know, I was, I didn't maintain enough contact or whatever. And it made it easier. 
uh, and the funeral itself, you know, it was it was a nice affair, and I had some great conversations, um, particularly with one of my cousins, whom I'm very close to, but you know, cats in the cradle haven't spoken to and hung out with enough in recent years. But he and I grew up almost like brothers. And then I also got to spend some good quality time with my dad, things like that. So it was good. And my dad and I were both sort of saying, like, it's the end of an era. Like, it's not just that he's the last of his generation in his family. You know, he was the patriarch for a long time. And now, basically, it's my dad, as far as the Kilmer side of my family is concerned, you know? Which then means I'm sort of like now in... My dad is now in the familial role that I've always thought of Poppy as being in, and then I'm like by default promoted to my dad's role, you know, of like the middle-aged dude of the family. And so we kind of talked about it. it. It felt like not just the end of an era of our family, but in a way almost of like the country... Because, like I was saying before, there's not that many people of that generation left. Just because, statistically, most people don't live to be 94. And and I said to my dad at one point, and I wasn't really joking, that I sort of felt, saying goodbye to him at the funeral, as if it was kind of like the elves in Lord of the Rings, the original, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy of books and movies, not the Amazon woke garbage. Where in the Lord of the Rings, they never really explain, like, the mechanics of it, I don't think, or I don't recall. But almost all of the elves are just leaving Middle-earth to go somewhere else, into these, you know, mythical lands across the Sea to the West or whatever. And it's never really spelled out explicitly what that means and why. And, you know, a few elves stay to help fight Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, but most of them are leaving. There's even those scenes in the movies where they're like walking to the West. And even at the end of the trilogy of movies, you know, it ends with Frodo leaving with the last of the elves. And there's just sort of this sense of like, all right, our era is over and we're walking off. And, uh, we've kind of, you know, run the thing as best we could while we could, but, Nothing lasts forever, and our time is gone. And so I almost sort of felt like he was the last of the elves leaving. As cheesy as that might sound if you don't really get what I'm saying. And I don't know, I I've sort of felt, I felt a sadness, and then also a sense of responsibility. Of like, alright, now at least as far as my family is concerned, like we've all been promoted up a notch. So now we got to try and live up to the example of one of the best men I ever knew. No pressure, right? And I feel like right now with as fucked up as our country and our society are in so many ways that we could benefit by looking back to the best the best people, the best attributes, the best virtues of previous generations, none of whom were perfect, either individually or as a collective generation. But they had a lot of virtues that have been, to a large extent, not amongst everybody, but to a large extent, forgotten. And in some cases, actively denigrated and deconstructed. And I think 
each of our families would be better off and our, you know, actual organic local communities would be better off. And then at the end of the day, the ripple effects upward, the country such as it is, would be better off if we could reconnect with some of those forgotten and denigrated virtues of earlier generations. And yeah, maybe learn from their mistakes and their shortcomings their errors and their blind spots. I'm not saying be a carbon copy of them, but do the Bruce Lee thing and try and take the best and most helpful parts of people like my grandfather and bring them into today and adapt them where necessary. So anyway, that's where my mind has been about all this stuff. And so believe it or not, in just about every way, the death of my last grandparent who was also my favorite grandparent, that happened during one of the darkest periods of depression I can remember having, actually ended up being a good thing. It made me feel gratitude. And it inspired me to start seeing gratitude in more areas of my life too. And if rumination without hope is the essence of depression then that means that the true antidote to depression is hope. And not the bullshit hope of a slick politician with a slogan. Not a charming, good-looking, slick-talking politician on TV promising hope and change or any other slogan. Not even Make America Great Again, which my grandfather, you know, was on board with. But hope in the sense of starting in your sphere of control, not letting the bad guys win, not letting their horrific combination of stupidity and evil corruption and incompetence ruin our lives to the degree that we can avoid it. My grandfather was the last of an old breed. He was a very good man. He was also a great man, not in the sense of a politician or a conqueror. But he was a great man, and thus I anoint him a DHP hero for whatever that's worth. Because he was a man who worked very hard, always tried to do the right thing as best he could understand it, and always tried to help those around him whenever he could. I'm sure there's things I intended to mention in this mostly off-the-cuff ramble, but I guess that'll have to do it. If you've listened all the way through this, I really thank you for your time, and I thank you for lending me your ears, and I hope I haven't wasted your time, and I hope you've gotten something out of this, and I hope in some small way I can inspire maybe a few other people to be grateful for what they have and what they have had, even if they've lost it. And to try and aim themselves upward at real examples of goodness and greatness in the true senses of the word and real examples of heroes. Regular middle and working class people who don't become famous, who don't get monuments built to them, but who make their little corner of the world a better place while they're there and do their best to try and pass some of it along to posterity.
On another note, just as a bit of housekeeping, I am continuing to work on the next Woodrow Wilson episode. It has been slowed down from all the stuff I've been going through lately and, you know, having to go to my grandfather's funeral, having to go help my daughter move at college and a whole bunch of other family obligations I've had to uh, contend with, my on my own ongoing struggle to improve my mental health and recover from addiction and severe depression. And then also the fact that I have had to do some additional, you know, part-time and freelance sorts of work in recent weeks and months just to try and struggle to keep my head a little bit above water financially. And so all of these things have combined to slow me down a bit on, you know, making the next DHP Wilson episode, which as you know, if you've listened to previous episodes in the series is a giant undertaking. There's a reason why since I started doing the Woodrow Wilson series, most of the time I can only do maybe at most two Woodrow Wilson episodes a year because I I just put so much work into each one. So I appreciate your patience And I promise I'm working hard on it whenever I can. Well, until next time, dear listener, take care. All right. Thanks for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it. And I just want to say to all of you who have continued to contribute to supporting my work over the last couple of months, despite the shortage of content. Although, by the way, just as a side note for supporting listeners, they have not been as bereft of content as the general population. They've continued to have some live streams and a book club call back in August. But um, anyway, thanks to all of you who've continued to chip in to support me and my work over the past couple months, despite the shortage of content from me. I hope you'll continue to do so. And I hope if you're listening and you're not a supporter that you might consider becoming one, because right now I could really, really use all the help I can get. And again, my hope and intention is to start putting out DHP episodes a little bit more frequently over the coming weeks and months. So if you're a supporter, thanks as always for your continued support. I really appreciate it now more than ever. And if you're not one, I hope you'll consider becoming one. So thanks for listening. And hopefully you'll hear more DHP from me in less than two months this time.